Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. You all know I'm a sucker for a good early retirement story. Jackie Cummings-Kowski retired at 49 years old and now spends her time creating a financially literate society. Retiring in your 40s is impressive in itself, but Jackie did this with no head start in life. She grew up in poverty with her dad and five siblings. She barely graduated college with passing grades because she had to work full-time. Then, Jackie went on to raise her daughter as a single mom after an early divorce. Sound like a candidate for early retirement? I don't think so. But Jackie made it happen through a lot of self-education and hustle. Speaking of education, Jackie became quite the expert in healthcare. And in this episode, Jackie shares a lot of methodologies for cutting your healthcare cost. Of course, Jackie is a huge advocate of my favorite tax advantage account, the HSA. And I've never seen an HSA as well-funded as Jackie's. Last we spoke, her HSA had over $150,000 in it. That's so impressive. I hope I can make a brag like that one day. But let's get into it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the black single mom who retired in her 40s without ever making six figures, Jackie Cummings-Kowski. Well, Jackie, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. I'm excited for this conversation. Had a blast researching you over the last week. I want to start with a date, actually. And I think you've referred to it as your new birthday, December 6th. 2019, what happened that day and why is it so important for you? Woohoo! That is a very important date for me. I, I do call it my new birthday because that was the day I officially retired from corporate America. After many, many years of contemplating, I was in my 40s at the time and it just felt so exhilarating. So that day is forever stamped in my head and I do call it my new birthday because that started me off on a whole new journey. Yeah. And you were at the young years of 49 years old to retire. Um, and actually, you hit financial independence at 46. So you probably could have retired a few years prior. But I know with some of your story, you wanted to have a little bit more room and in, in that number. Does teenage Jackie, did she envision herself retiring at 49? What was your thought process back then? Well, heck no, no <laughs> way, no way. And, you know, at that age, we none of us think about retirement or anything like that. We think we're going to be uh, that age forever. I definitely never thought that I would have retired so soon. I mean, back then I was just, you know, I, I grew up in poverty. And so I was just wanting to have a steady paycheck and to, you know, have a good job. I ended up going to school because that was one of the most, you know, tangible ways that I figured would, would get me there. I wanted to be stable. I wanted to have financial security. And, and really my big dream at the time probably was that I just wanted to be middle class like everyone else. Mm. And, and so that, that's where my mind was when I was a lot younger. Yeah. I mean, looking back on where you started and where you got to is very, very impressive. It almost makes me feel like financial independence and retiring early is accessible to the majority of people if they understand what path could be laid in order to do that. Let's talk a little bit more about you growing up. I know you were raised by a single dad and he passed away before your 18th birthday. Is that right? Before I graduated from high school, I think I turned 18. He, so I turned 18 in December he passed away in March and I graduated in May. So I was just turned 18, not even graduated from high school yet. So he's never got to see me graduate from high school. So yeah, that was kind of how things happen. I had to grow up real fast. Yeah. So what was the living situation? You were one of six. Yeah, it was crazy, right? One of six kids. So it was seven of us, my dad and his six kids. And I didn't realize how unusual that was until I got older. But he he raised, you know, six kids by himself and he only had a sixth grade education. Wow. So he started working, you know, very early, you know, as a young boy. And what he did, I remember he worked at a jean factory and it was like a mill. And back in the South, back then, that was a big thing working at like a, a textile mill. 
And I always remember he always had like a second job, like we call them side hustles now, but he worked like he did a little construction work on the side, but he did, he worked his butt off and he did everything he could to make sure that all of his kids were provided for, that we had food on the table, but you know, not much more than that. You know, we, we had to wear hand-me-downs and, you know, we were paycheck from to paycheck, but um, you know, we survived. That's tough. What was the housing situation? Did you guys bunk up? Yeah, we did. So, you know, right now I live in like a four bedroom home <laughs> and, and it's like, and it's, it's not super big, but it's way bigger than what I grew up in, you know, with my dad. So it, like I said, it was seven of us in a house, my dad and um, six kids, and it was a small ranch home. And if I had to guess the square footage, it was probably somewhere around maybe 1200 or 1500 square feet. It wasn't that big. But it was uh, three bedrooms. So one of the bedrooms was, it was four girls and two boys. So one of the bedrooms was the girls, okay? So we had two twin beds. Well, it was two girls in one bed, two girls in another bed. Wow. And then it was my dad's room. And then my brother's, there was a living room that was kind of long. So the back half of the, I guess the family room, the back half of, half of the family room had a bed. And that's where my two brothers slept. So those were the sleeping arrangements. Like you didn't have fancy things in your room or anything like that. You had your bed and, you know, maybe, you know, a few clothes in the closet and that was about it. So, so that's how we manage. And again, these days, you know, we're living in, you know, four and five bedroom homes with two people or four people. And you wonder, wow, how did uh, we even do that? But, you know, those were the arrangements, you know, I didn't question it. And that was all I knew. What was um, oldest sibling to youngest sibling? age difference wise. Was there a big gap there? We were pretty much stair steps. So I, so I had one younger sister, Gwen, and I'm a year older than her. Then my sister, Eleanor, she was a year older than me. My brother, Charles was a year older than her. James was a year older than him. And then my oldest sister, Marilyn was about a year older than him. So oh, holy cow. So you guys were all, years. you guys were pretty much all in the house at the same time then, huh? Oh, we were all in the same house most of the time. Yeah, because there's, if you think about it, we were only, there was only like a six or seven year difference. And you know, back then people had big families and that's how they did it. They had a lot of kids like back to back to back. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, we were, we were all in the same household for a long time. I just, the one thing I remember as far as someone leaving was my brother went into the um, army. And so he was out and he was in the army. But yeah, most of my childhood memory, it was all of us there. And obviously, as time went on, you know, people would move out or, you know, whatever. And then eventually, well, while my dad was there, I, I didn't move out. So I never, I was always in the house while he was there. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. And like I said, I still to this day don't know how he did it, but he did. I don't want to make light of this, but I can't like, I'm, I, I can only imagine you for like fighting for the groceries. I think you said payday is on Thursday and your father would bring back and fill up the fridge on Thursdays. And then everybody would <laughs> kind of be fighting for the food. And then it would, the, the refrigerator would slowly empty until that following Thursday. Yeah, that's exactly how it happened. He'd buy enough for the week. And, you know, talk about living paycheck to paycheck, you know, that's, was basically it. So, you know, I knew Thursday was payday because pretty much, you know, everything was the refrigerator was pretty much gone and it, it needed to be replenished at that point. And, and yeah, being not only like uh, having that scarcity mindset because you had to share everything with like five other people, it was just, you know, very tight. So I remember when my daughter moved out of the house and she's an only child. So she's like, mom, I wish I had some siblings and are you going to be okay without me or whatever? And I'm like, look, I spent almost my whole life with five, sharing everything with five <laughs> siblings. It's like, I, I, I want this. And then, you know, I got married right after college. So, so yeah, and I, I just specifically remember my younger sister, Gwen, one time. So this is in South Carolina. We, I remember we didn't have air conditioning. Ugh. Yeah. In South Carolina. <laughs> I think about that now. That's like I'm horrible. in Ohio and it gets too hot during the summer. But I just remember we had this one little fan in the bedroom. And I had the fan on me and she comes in, she turns the fan and I turn it back. So before you know it, we're going at each other, fighting like sisters <laughs> over a fan. So, so yeah, just those little things just come back to you, you know. That's, that's so wild. So you frequently mention your ticket out of poverty and kind of progressing towards middle class was school and education. What was college like for you? Yeah, college was 
a bit different than the story I hear from a lot of people. Like, you know, they had a lot of you know parental support in terms of helping them go visit the college campus and, and helping them take the right classes so that they, you know, get scholarships for school and things like that. But for me, the way mine looked, again, my dad had passed away a couple months before. So probably I had already gotten accepted. So I went to a local college. It wasn't a community college. It was a four-year school. But I remember I had, I knew that I was responsible for my own tuition. And there was no one I could lean on or anyone that was going to support me, no kind of safety net. So I ended up working full-time plus. So, you know, my dad worked, you know, full-time job and a part-time job. So did I when I was in school, because that's what I was taught. That's what I saw. So I worked 50 plus hours a week just to make sure tuition was paid. Now I got a little bit of scholarship money. I was a cross-country runner. So I got like, I think one semester covered. and I had a little bit of grant money. The FAFSA form wasn't around at the time, but uh, there was some other way. And I was able to get some grant money. And by the time I was a senior, the grant money was like all my, apparently my income was too high to get any more grant money. So that meant I had to kick in a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So while I'm, you know, working my butt off, trying to pay my tuition and everything, I'm still taking a full load of classes at school. And it's just like not the setup I would, recommend for anyone, but this is what was, was all I knew to do. Like, I didn't know that student loans were even available and it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. So I didn't get a student loan until like my senior year when I just didn't have enough to, to finish school. So what really suffered, you know, I, t- I took a full load back then it was three or four class, but what really suffered was my grades because when I waited, I'm like, okay, if I don't work, I can't pay my tuition and I can't stay in school. So work came first. And so I graduated, thank goodness, but I had like the lowest GPA you could get. I think you had to have a 2.5 in order to graduate. And I had a 2.6. So I barely made it. And for a while, I didn't even know I needed to pay attention to that because I was a first, first generation college graduate. So I didn't have even, even a sibling to say, you know, let me show you how you need to look at this. Let me show you how... You need to make sure you pay attention to your GPA. Let me show you how you can, you know, get more scholarships or more grants or whatever so that you don't have to work all the time and you can actually study. So I had nobody giving me guidance like that. I felt, honestly, I didn't even have time to feel alone because I was either working or going to school or trying to get those four hours of sleep at night that I mostly got. So, so that was kind of my college experience. Like I said, the one thing that I did, I I did run cross country. And the only reason I did that was because the coach talked to me. He said, look, he was trying to get me to be on the team. Like, look, I'm not really that great of a runner and I don't have time to do it. And he finally said, well, you get a scholarship for the semester and boom, you know, that was it. (laughs) Sign me up. (laughs) Yeah, sign me up. So that helped. I got that for like three years and he allowed me to do some practicing on my own, like on the weekend. So occasionally I wouldn't even be able to practice with the team. But I, I, you know, I committed to him that I would do it on my own and everything. So, you know, the cross country scholarship was helpful. Again, you know, it's not like basketball or football scholarships only it covered a little bit. It didn't cover books. It didn't cover housing or anything like that. Mm. So, so that was my college experience, you know. I didn't know you were a cross country runner. We'll have to go on a run sometime. <laughs> yeah, we do. I mean, I, I don't do as much running as I used to, but that's the thing that I enjoy. I enjoy enjoy being outdoors and whether it's running, hiking, walking or whatever, I think that came from, you know, doing it, you know, when I was, I was younger and, you know, I have pretty good stamina when it comes to that. So I guess I'm thankful for that. So how'd you approach the college conversation with your daughter? I am guessing you probably shared some lessons from your experience. Did you financially support her through college? Because I I heard you mention in a podcast that you actually regret working so much, even though I don't think you really had a decision. And and that fact, it was either pay for school or don't do school at all. So I think it's much better to at least work and go to school. But I know you were probably disappointed in your GPA now looking back and wishing that you might have put a little bit more time and effort in your academics. So how did you approach that conversation with your daughter? Yeah, so with my daughter, even though I didn't have certain advantages when I was younger, as far as, you know, help going to college and things like that and, and financial support from family, 
I definitely wanted to give that to her, right? Like, this is part of why, why I'm doing this, why I'm trying to, you know, get my finances straight and things like that. So when her, me and her dad were married, we, this is so old school, but we started saving double E savings bonds. And the reason we did that was because my husband's employer, they had this payroll deduction. It was a bank and they had a payroll deduction to do that. And the reason why we thought about it for school is because you could use those tax-free to pay for college. Now, now you have 529s and things like that, but that's what we did. And the thing is, even though it was probably not the best investment, we started that when she was a baby. So, you know, thinking about the, the value of compound growth, you know, we started very early and the bonds, actually, we probably, you know, was using those bonds or saving them for maybe like eight or nine years. And that ended up being enough to cover her college. Like she went to an estate school. And in addition, well, in addition to that, like, I didn't know how much it had added up, but in addition to that, I started her a 529. And with the 529, it grew and grew and grew for like the next eight years. And it ended up where I didn't, I didn't even need to use any of her 529 money, but it would, yeah, but it was always the intent to help her with college. I did want her to have some skin in the game. And, and, you know, I guess that's, that's sort of the tightrope you walk when you grew up in poverty, but you're trying to create generational wealth and trying to give your kid a better life. So I'm thinking, okay, I, I, I do want to help her. I don't want her to struggle like I did. And the fact that I struggled, I could talk about it all day long, but it just doesn't hit her the same way as it hits me. Right. So she knew, you know, what I, what I had to go through and things like that to get through college. But uh, so she got out of college debt-free, no student loans. And I'm very thankful to that, for that. But she, she did always be very conscientious about like money and finances. Like she chose an estate school. There's, you know, I'm in Ohio. There's some great schools here. She also was thinking she didn't want to take a student loan. Like I didn't necessarily tell her, yeah, I have all this money for your college. You know, she kind of felt like she needed some skin in the game. So she always worked at least part time or during the summer. And one of the schools that she went to, the four year institution that she started at for, for a year, she thought she wanted to do fashion design. As you know, things change. Right. Yep. So as they should, she, as they should. And so she grew and she discovered she really liked graphic design, not um, not the fashion design part. So she decided to come back near my home and went to a college here. And where the tuition was even lower. So there was a number of things that contributed to her not having student loans. You know, one, the fact that, you know, we helped her, you know, from saving since she was a baby, but also the fact that she didn't choose a super expensive school. Let's say, for instance, if she would have chosen, you know, Wharton or one of the other Columbia or one of the other big expensive, you know, private colleges that would have drained, you know, the, the, the bonds, it would have drained the 529 and she probably would have gotten a student loan. So it was a number of things, but I did sort of catch her conscientiousness around the cost of college and she didn't want to have student loans. So I was happy that that's where her head was. And I was, I think it worked to her advantage because she found what she liked. The school wasn't quite as important. And this is probably a year or two in college that she's sort of going through this thought process. And I'm glad that it finally like hit her that um, it was more important what she is doing and her field and knowing that than it was the school, unless it's like, you know, one of the top three schools or something. Sure. Yeah. I I'm with her. I did not want student loans either. I was very conscious of the sticker cost of the universities that I was looking at. And yeah, I, I'm totally with her. I think it's what you put into it. I mean, obviously there's these Ivy League schools that come with some really great resume popping names and that would definitely support you and help you, but you can just as well make a really good start for yourself, going to a good school, getting involved in clubs, you know, not digging yourself into too, too deep of a hole with student loans, really applying yourself in, in the classroom and also, you know, you know, taking, doing internships, doing internships, That's another big yes, one. no doubt, paid, no doubt. Paid internships. Let's hope so. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So, so, well, I, I'm so glad you ended up finishing college. I'm proud of you. You came from a lot. And after college, you ended up going working for Walmart. And the really impressive piece, I think, for you is that I see you retire at 49, coming from poverty. I'm thinking somewhere along the storyline, 
she hits it big. She turns into a sales rep or she does something where she's making <laughs> $200,000, But that is not the case. You retired by 49, never making more than six figures. That's right. And, and it was never my goal to make six figures. But, you know, for a lot of people, that's the magic number. They want to be over six figures or they want to move up the corporate ladder. And it took me a long time, Justin, to figure out that was not my path. That was not what I was. I, for a while, I thought something was wrong with me, right? That I didn't want to be on that corporate path, but I just didn't. I was more concerned about, you know, I got divorced when my daughter was like 10 years old. So I wanted to make sure she was going to be okay. And that I was able to spend enough time with her. You know, I could, like you said, I could have took the high paying field rep job, heavy commission, bringing home tons of money. I could have chosen that, but I decided to, you know, stay, you know, working from our home office, which paid a little bit less than what I would have gotten, a lot less actually, than what I would have gotten if I would have, you know, traveled and been that type of, you know, sales professional, whatever. And it was a conscientious choice that I made because, you know, growing up in poverty, you learn how to do a lot with a little. So I didn't, I didn't need to live in scarcity anymore, but I was totally comfortable with, with what I was making. And I was able to do things I wanted to do. And probably the biggest thing for me was I knew that I was being smarter with the money that I had. So I didn't have to have $150,000 salary to, you know, start accumulating my net worth, to start like figuring out some of these tax advantages that put more money in my pocket and less going to the IRS. So when I figured that part out, it was no longer my goal to, or, or I, I, it sort of reinforced the fact that I didn't need to make a ton more money. I felt like I was making a decent salary. You know, I live in a low cost of living area or at least like low to mid cost in Ohio. You know, I, the way that I came up with that $80,000 number was that I took the last 10 years that I was working and I just averaged that out and it came to $80,000. So the highest, you know, I went back and I looked at my social security statement, right? Where it lists year by year. So I, my highest year was like 95 or $96,000. And over the last 10 years, I think it was like 60 something, but I never hit that hundred thousand um, dollar mark. And again, I wasn't saying, I wasn't thinking, oh gee, I should be at a hundred thousand or whatever. I just learned, I, I enjoyed more so being smart with my money, like learning how to invest, say, you know, what is my savings rate, being conscientious about, you know, where my money went. Yeah. And when it comes to building wealth, the money that you deploy is really just the difference between how much you make and how much you spend. So if you're making 200,000, you're spending 200,000, you're not going to have a whole lot of money to deploy in terms of saving and investing. But one thing I think you were very prudent in doing is taking advantage of some of the offerings that your company did have. And one of those in particular is an HSA or health savings account. And we've talked about this in a couple different episodes, but extensively in episode 40 with Sean Mullaney, FI tax guy. So I don't know if we need to go through all of the 101. I think if listeners are interested in, in figuring out what, what an HSA is, they can go back and listen to that. But let's start with deciding is a high deductible health plan right for you or not? You are great at kind of going through that because as much as I will praise HSAs and you will too, it's my favorite tax advantage account out there it's not necessarily right for everyone. So how do you know if it's right for you or if it's not right for you? Well, that's the key thing. It is not right for everyone. And, and Sean Mulaney, he knows so much about HSAs, the mechanics of it and things like that. He's a tax guy. But the important part is, is knowing, well, <clears throat> I think HSAs are for everybody, but the high deductible plan that you have to have to go along with it is not. Now, if Jackie ruled the world, I would say we need to decouple HSA with a high deductible plan. Why is that not a thing yet? I don't get it. Right. I, I feel like we may, I know that there was, there were so many different proposals to HSAs, all of them enhancing them, the HSAs, but there was a proposal. I don't know what happened to it because there's so many different ones, legislation or where it would say that you did not have to be on a certain type of healthcare plan. Because I think about the people that are on Medicare, the people that are on even a traditional health insurance plan. A lot of times, you know, it might be, you might have to use a provider out of network or your insurance doesn't cover it. Like there's plenty of situations where you're going to end up with a lot that you have to pay out of pocket. So why can't you have an HSA? 
agree. And and so yeah, I, I know I've heard the counter argument that it almost this this tax loophole almost alienates low income earners because they can't necessarily sign up for a high deductible health plan because they can't take on that risk. So right. I I don't know. I it, it makes sense for me to decouple the two. I'd love to see that right. in the near term, if not long term future, because it's a great well, look. I'm about I'm everybody. about to. Yeah, I'm about to start writing my congressperson um, Let's go. because I do have some extra knowledge because I think that so. So, yeah, it was so Shami Mulaney and his writings and his knowledge was not around when I was picking my identical plan. So I was on my own, Justin. I was trying to figure this out. Like when when my company first introduced them, which was shortly after they, I think they started like in 2004. Don't quote me on that. But my company started them like around 2008. And when I saw the plan, they were poorly named, right? It said a high deductible plan. So why would I want something that's higher? So that didn't make any, so that turned me off. But I dug a little deeper. I started looking at the premiums. The premium were significantly lower. So if you're looking at a traditional plan versus a high deductible, it wouldn't make any sense to choose the high deductible if the premium wasn't significantly lower, Mm -hmm. but it was, it was like a third or one fourth of the cost of the traditional plan. And the company kicked in a little bit of money so that at the time, I remember when they started, it was like 800 bucks. They put That's 800 awesome. bucks and you, yeah. And that pretty much covered the difference in the premium. Then you pay for the traditional plan. And when you're paying those premiums, the money goes to the insurance company and it's gone forever. So that's sunk cost. So I like the idea that I would pay a lower premium that's going to the insurance company. And I could take that difference and put it in a health savings account that belonged to me. So, so the big things that I looked at in terms of, is this right for me and my daughter? First of all, it was two people. So I couldn't just look at myself. And that probably comes to the first point that a lot of people are like, well, I have a family of five. So it's not just me I'm worried about. Someone's always getting hurt or sick or whatever. So that's the first like scary little thing that turns a lot of people off when it comes to like a high deductible health plan, you know, even if it has a low premium. So I was very healthy and I think even when I had a traditional plan, it was like 500 bucks. I never even came came close to the deductible. So I'm thinking, oh, geez, now I can have a high deductible, which I never met anyway, and I can pay less in premiums. My daughter was pretty healthy. We would, each of us would go to the doctor about once a year for our wellness visits. And that was, that was about it. So when you're on a high deductible plan, plan, all the wellness visits are, you know, included. So there's no charge. So by the time I, I looked at that, that was number one. And number two was, I love the idea of having this savings account that was tax-free, making contributions, and that I could invest the money. That was a big deal because I had learned, and this was shortly after my divorce, but I started learning a lot about the stock market, compound growth, and things like that. So that knowledge was so valuable to me. So I'm thinking, oh, so I can put money in this account, it's tax-free, and it can grow? Sign me up. So... (laughs) So, so, so it, it worked for me, but the worst, but I did think about the worst case scenario and the worst case scenario did happen. And then things changed a little bit, but you are out of pocket for everything that you have to pay for, for all your expenses before you hit your deductible. And the deductibles are a little bit higher, like for family. I can't remember like what the IRS um, limits are now, but like for a single, I'm thinking it's around like maybe $1,400. And for a family, maybe like 3000 or something like that. So you're paying out of pocket for everything before you meet that deductible. Now, again, for me, I never even met the deductible. But, you know, what if I was in a car accident? What if my daughter got injured? Then I'm on the hook for potentially two, $3,000 before my insurance would kick in. So in my head, I knew that that was something that could be possible. And that was a worst case scenario. So in my health savings account, the provider I had made you keep at least, I think at least $2,000 in liquid cash. You couldn't invest it. Now, I didn't really like that restriction to begin with, but as time went on, I'm like, that makes sense. And especially your first year, that first year that you're on a high deductible health plan, that's the scariest because you don't know how things are going to go. And then if there is an accident or something like that, you might think to yourself, well, I'm never doing this again. Well, I thought it was a better idea to keep a certain amount, at least your deductible in cash for that first year in case something happened. And so I did that. And then the following year, I'm like, okay, I can start investing, but I'll still keep, you know, I still had to keep that $2,000 to the side. So as time went on, I, you know, I had my health savings account for 11 years. So I kept using that plan, 
kept maxing out. And in order to max out your HSA and be on a family plan, it's just you and one other person. So it doesn't have to be you and your spouse. It was me and my daughter. So I maxed it out to the family max. And it just kept growing and growing because I had it invested. And luckily, you know, nothing big ever happened or not big enough to where I felt like I needed to take money out of my health savings account. So I just held on to the receipt, knowing that there was no time limit, you know, to reimburse yourself. So I would, you know, just take a picture of the receipt and have a folder for that, you know, very low tech. For someone that's interested in it, just make sure you compare all the components. You want to compare the premiums, you want to compare the deductible, and you want to compare the out-of-pocket max and consider if the company is putting any money in your HSA. So don't just look at it from a standpoint of the deductible, which people tend to do. They just look at the deductible. So yeah, that might be higher, but your premiums are lower, the out-of-pocket max, you know, you do the math around that and how much you think you will be using of the healthcare services. So the, all you can do is take the best guess, but I guess the best part about it is that you're not signing up for this plan forever. Try it for a year and see how you feel, you know, so you don't have to necessarily stick with it for five or 10 years and, and you can't change it. Change it the next year if you don't like it. But I feel like it's definitely worth a try, you know, once you run the numbers. But um, to your point, it's not going to be for everyone, but it's definitely worth looking at to see if it could work for like you and your family. Yeah. I would agree. And I hate to put out general statements, but it typically is right for lots of 20-somethings who are healthy and conscious of their health. So I think the crux of this is really determining, are you a high user or low user when it comes to your health insurance? And then it's taking what would be your traditional plan at your employer versus what the high, high deductible plan is. And then, as you mentioned, comparing both the premiums, deductibles, and max out-of-pocket in doing some quick math and realizing it, I found out, and HSAs work well for me, similar to you, I don't go to the doctor very often. I'm actually very injury prone. So every once in a while, I do break a bone, but that is me and stupidity and action sports. But I found I could max out my deductible once every four years, and it would still be a more financially savvy decision for me to go with the high deductible HSA option just on premium difference alone, let alone what I could potentially use the money right. to turn around and invest in and make even more money com compounding on itself, which is what you did. Your right. HSA now, your That's HSA right. account is an unbelievable number. How, how, what is it's it at right crazy. now? So the number of years that I actually contributed to it was 11 years. I contributed the family max. And this was like from 2008 to like 2019. And it has grown to over $150,000. Wow. And when I broke, I broke down, okay, how much did I put in versus how much did it grow? How much did my employer put in? And the biggest piece of that $150,000 is growth because, um, you know, again, 11 years of contributions. And I have, I have not been on a high deductible health plan. This is why you got to look at what works for you. But I'm on a, the, an ACA exchange healthcare plan that just turned out to be a much better deal to not do the high deductible plan. So for the last two years, 2020, 2021, I didn't make any contributions at all. And it's still over $150,000 because it's still growing and I can use those funds. I don't have to be on a high deductible plan to use the funds. So any out of pocket, I can use it. I can use it for dental. I can use it for vision, you know, way in the future when I'm on Medicare, I can even use it for like Medicare premiums. But, you know, it's just nice being retired that know that I've got this pot of money that can will take care of the medical piece of things, you know, if I need to, because there's a statistic around, you know, most people file for bankruptcy because of health care debt or health debt, medical debt. So to sort of have a little safety net there for that piece where we know that that causes a lot of people, a lot of strain on their finances, it's just nice to have it there. Agreed. Yeah, I am with you there. And if you haven't listened to episode 40 yet, Jackie is explaining that you can save your receipts. You don't necessarily have to use the funds in your HSA right away. You can go and have medical expenses, take a picture of those receipts, save those receipts, and then anytime in the future, pull that money out tax-free based on those receipts that you had there. So it sounds like you haven't taken out any money from your HSA yet, but you have this like pool or folder, I guess, digital folder of receipts that at some point in time, if you need the money out of your HSA, you can go and pull out, pull that out. 
yeah, and pull it out for anything because I've already got, you know, there's that saying, you know, I have the receipts. So I have the receipts to show that I incurred these expenses and there's no, so all I would do the, let's say if I needed to take out, let's say $10,000 for whatever, it doesn't even have to be medical, but as long as I have $20,000 worth of receipts, I can take the receipts and just file it with my taxes for that year because, you know, I will have to say, yes, I took withdrawals. Yes, they were qualified. And then I would have to have the receipts just like you would for anything else. And it, it's just that simple. I mean, like you said, I have not had to use it, but in the future, I'm sure that I have, you know, generally, you know, like you said, when you're young and healthy, you're in your twenties, but your healthcare, your healthcare needs are typically very low for most 20 somethings, right? So a high deductible plan is good because you're not incurring, you know, even a $500 deductible, if you get the low deductible and you're paying more in premiums, then it's almost like I, I felt like this. I felt like I was throwing money away when I had to get insurance. And, and I, and, you know, we talked about my dad passing away. Well, this is not a good thing, but I didn't have insurance like for a long time. I didn't even know I needed it. So I'm in co- the entire time I was in college, no, no insurance. And then right after college, no insurance for a couple of years until, you know, I started, you know, working my job at Walmart. Usually like before there was like a waiting period and all the stuff you had the pre-existing conditions. It was horrible, but I never hardly went to the doctor. Like I wouldn't even go and get my regular physicals. I should have, but you know, when you're young, you're, you're just more likely to be healthy. But as time goes on, you know, your health is likely to decline, you start having issues, back issues, knee issues, whatever. You know, you're just more likely to be a uh, greater consumer of healthcare when you get older. So, if you do the heavy lifting when you're younger, and you know, high deductible plan, you know, works for you, and you build up that HSA, you probably won't have any trouble spending it as you get older because you will start to spend more on healthcare. Yeah, for me, I imagine it. It acts like my 401k, my retirement account for all of my future health expenses. And that's a good way to look at it. And I get the pushback sometimes that like, Hey, I'm like, if I build my HSA up too big, which is always a great problem to have, I'm not gonna be able to spend all of that money, but I believe you can like spend it on premiums in like Medicare premiums or maybe even long-term care, things like that. Yeah. Long-term care, Medicare premiums, but even aside from that, Let's say if I die tomorrow, I still got $150,000 in there. So, so Justin, you know, I've already thought about this. So, you know, I got this little financial mind. <laughs> going on. So here's what I have done. So most of what I have would go to my daughter, right? But I do have siblings and I have nieces and nephews. And so guess which account is going to be split among all of them. It, anybody that gets anything after I pass away, is going to be via my HSA because when you pass away and someone other than your spouse is the beneficiary, it stops being an HSA and the whole thing is taxable the year in which you pass away. So I have divided that. So obviously if someone gets all 150,000, that, that they're going to have to pay taxes on it. Okay. So I decided to put whoever else I want to leave something, their beneficiary to the HSA. In addition to that, other ways that an HSA might be better to name a beneficiary on is a nonprofit because nonprofits don't pay any taxes. So that's the one account that I've designated to have multiple beneficiaries and nonprofits. And that's going to either minimize or eliminate the tax hit. So it's almost like looking at all of my finances holistically to say, which account does it make sense to have divided up or to go to a charity? So that's how I've decided to sort of slice and dice that account so that it no one person is getting a big tax hit. My daughter, she'll get money from those other accounts that are way more tax advantage as an inheritance than um, an HSA. So there's workarounds for everything. You just need to put a little thought into it. So yeah. I love our mutual love for <laughs> HSAs. It is, I'm always rooting for it. If it makes sense for you, go out, check it out, ask your employer, see if it's an option for you. It's such a great option for almost I don't know. I don't want to put a percentage on it, but so many young people out there. So go check that out. But even if that's not right for you, you also are very savvy and frugal like I am. And you know some ways <laughs> to cut some cost with healthcare as well. What have you learned around cutting healthcare costs, like shopping for medications or procedures? What can you tell me around that? Yeah, there's a bunch of different things. And honestly, with technology, Justin, it's more and more ways. Like, you know, Mark Cuban started that. I know I'm going to get the name wrong, but he started a drug company where he figured out that there's ways to get 
the cost of drugs way cheaper. And so certain drugs that you would have gotten for, let's say, $80, you know, sometimes even with insurance, especially if you're on a high deductible health plan, he has it for like $25. And it's not because he has some special secret, but it was because he knew that other countries were paying a lot less for these drugs and that there was other ways that he could acquire it. Typically, these drug plans are with the insurance company and they kind of run the game. So he said, wait a minute, I think I can do this. And uh, I just got an email where they added like 50, 50 more different drugs to do that. And then you got things like GoodRx. So a lot of times, uh, GoodRx, single care, there's a ton of them out there now where you could end up paying less for your prescription just using one of those services versus putting it through your health insurance. So keep that in mind. Also, normally the more expensive drugs is where there's no generic equivalent. Like I remember, you know, when I was on a high deductible plan, my daughter was on an asthma medication. I think it was Sembacort. Yeah. And at the time there was no generic equivalent. And this drug was like 1400 bucks for like a 30 day supply. It was ridiculous, but it was because there's no generic equivalent. And we've all run into that. So a lot of people that don't really want to look at a high deductible plan or people that might have, you know, expensive drugs, right? So normally you can go to the manufacturer's website. In this case, I think it was AstraZeneca. So you go to the website and they have this coupon where the most you would pay is like $200 for the prescription. And you could end up paying zero depending on like your insurance or whatever. Basically, they were willing to cover whatever your insurance company didn't cover. And this was because there was no generic equivalent. They knew it was super expensive. So always go to, if you know there's not a generic equivalent, always go to the manufacturer's website, like put in the manufacturer and then coupon or discount or something like that. So that's a good way. Every now and then your, your physician might have um, samples of a certain drug or something that you need it that they can give away because, you know, sometimes the drug companies or whoever, they may give it to the doctor. I've asked for that. And then the hospitals, any kind of services, they almost always will either negotiate down, I mean, significantly, or they will set you up on a payment plan where there's no interest or anything. Like this is like almost like normal protocol for them. So they're more than happy to do it. I remember one time, Justin, I had a bill. I think it was only like, you know, $150 or something like that. And I was going online to pay it. And they, before I even paid it, they automatically offered me a payment plan. Hmm. And they said, oh, do you want to pay this at once or do you want to split it up? No interest or anything. And if you split it up, it was like 50 bucks a month for three months. So there's just all these like cool ways to save that has little or nothing to do with insurance. But if you're on the high deductible plan, a lot of times I would just say, you know, I, I don't have insurance that will cover this. And a lot of times they have a cash payment option that's cheaper or they are more willing to negotiate or whatever. Those providers, they know that the American healthcare system is pretty messed up. So most of the time they will work with you, but you do have to ask. Sometimes they'll have policies on their website or whatever, but don't be afraid to ask. And I call it just crying poor. Sometimes you just have to cry poor, you know, when it comes to, you know, paying a lump sum or whatever, because they know most people aren't able to do that. And that's why you have so many people. Uh, that's the reason for a lot of people filing bankruptcy is, you know, because of medical debt. So yeah, there's a lot of little, little tricks, and a lot of things in there that, that you can do even beyond your health insurance. Yeah. Those are good tidbits. Mark Cuban's company is Cuban plus drugs or cost plus drugs.com. Yeah, I'll throw it. that in the show notes if anybody is interested. And yeah, I think even the simple advice of just asking if there's a generic equivalent is, is great. I, I don't think I, yeah really realized that was an option when discussing with my doctor, but just simply asking and turning around, is this the generic or is there a generic equivalent is, is really great advice. So. Yeah. Only in rare cases would the generic not work, but in, all, in most cases, the generic equivalent is fine. And a lot of times your insurance company will dictate that or the pharmacy may recommend that or whatever, but yeah, definitely ask for a generic equivalent. I, I feel like that's almost protocol now, but in case it's not, you know, no one cares about, you know, your health and, and what you're paying um, out of pocket than you do. Hey, thanks for listening to The Struggle's Real. A quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back. 
You know I love covering personal finance topics on The Struggle Is Real. I frequently get asked the question, how do I start investing? My suggestion? Check out the Build Wealth by Investing course created by the founder of Personal Finance Club and friend of the show, Jeremy Schneider. This course includes everything you need to know to invest in index funds. And if you've been listening to The Struggle Is Real, you know I believe this is the most optimal, consistent way to build wealth. I don't believe in any gimmicks or get-rich-quick schemes. This course doesn't include any of that, but you will find investing broken down into easily understandable concepts and simple-to-follow rules. He'll also walk you through how-tos, such as how to open up an investing account, how much to invest, and how to choose an index fund. Jeremy and his team literally built the personal finance course I wish was taught in school. If you are someone that wants to start investing, but you just don't know what to do, this course is perfect for you. This course also makes for a great gift for a 20-something getting started on their personal finance journey. You can check out the course using the link in the show notes or go to justinpeters.co forward slash deals. By purchasing the course through our link, you are supporting the show. So thank you for that, as that is how we continue to expand the show. If you want a teaser, check out episode 57 with Jeremy, where of course, I got to ask him a bunch of questions about investing, the cost of fees, and early retirement. Now back to the show. Well, Jackie, let's turn the conversation towards financial literacy. I think we'll have to, I, I need to have a whole conversation or, or whole episode on saving around medical costs, because I realize that is just like an area I'm not very confident in, but there is so much room. So I appreciate those. But I do want to ask you some questions on investing since you are, I'm going to call you an investing expert, even though you might push back on that. But between having an investing expert and an educator in front of me, let's have some fun. I want to ask you a couple investing questions or terms that I hear in investing. And I'm hoping that you can break them down into simple language for me. I would say these would be stupid questions, but I know you'd correct me and say these were <laughs> courageous questions. Yes, <laughs> courageous and ambitious questions, because more than likely other people are wondering about that. And you're the brave one that um, actually <laughs> asked it. So, yes, there's, the, you know, the, the teacher I had when I was in elementary school said there's no stupid questions. The only stupid questions was the ones that you didn't ask. So Yes, there it is. There it is. So let's start. What's the dividend? Okay, so a dividend is usually referred to when you're talking about stocks. It could be a mutual fund as well, and I'll just define a mutual fund. Mutual fund is simply a basket of stocks, right? Instead, or, or it could be other investments, but instead of having a single stock, let's say Amazon, you've got a whole bunch of them. You've got Amazon, Google, or McDonald's, or whatever, all in one basket. So basically, it's where the company or the fund has made part of the profits that they make they decide, you know what, we want to reward our shareholders. So they're going to give a small portion of their, of their profits to you in the form of a dividend. And usually those are paid out quarterly. If an average range of a dividend might be anywhere from a half of a percent to two or three percent. And it typically depends on the type of company, like, you know, your really big, you know, Fortune 500 companies, let's say Procter & Gamble, they're not growing as fast anymore, but they got lots of profits and they are deciding to reward their shareholders with a quarterly dividend to say, hey, we want to share in the profits. Even before you sell the stock, we want to give you a little bit of money each quarter. Love that. What about fractional shares? Oh, I love fractional shares. Okay. So uh, those are also referred to as, you know, slices of a stock or partial shares or whatever. Well, I can tell you back in the day, when you wanted to buy a stock, you had to buy at least one share. Was we know, for instance, Amazon stock before it splits, I'm not sure if it's split yet, but it will. But today it's worth about each share is going to cost you over $3,000 for just one share. So most investors that's just starting out, most beginners, they don't have $3,000 to buy one share. But what if they still want to own Amazon. So that's where these, these partial shares or fractional shares come into play, where you can actually buy the stock based on a dollar amount versus a share. So there's plenty of brokers that do that now. I know for sure Schwab, Fidelity, Robinhood, Stash. There's a lot of newer companies are allowing you to just trade based on the dollar amount versus a share. And I commend those companies because they are in inviting 
new investors, young investors, beginning investors. So you can start right away. You don't have to hold on to your money until you, you know, save a certain amount. You can buy it based on the dollar amount and start investing right away. Love that too. I am a, I use Fidelity and it's so great because I just tell them how much in terms of dollar amounts that I want to buy. And I don't have to think about, I can only afford this many shares. So I love that. Last one. And you mentioned it, stock splits. I've been hearing a lot about this in the news recently. So what is it? Yeah. So a stock split. Now there is a psychological side for it. So we'll tackle that later. But in terms of just simple math, it doesn't create any more value for the company. The company isn't worth any more before the split than it is after the split. If we talk about it in, in, in terms of a pie, so we have this whole pie and that's one share of the stock, okay? And if they say we're going to split this four to one, that means you're going to now have four shares of the stock for every one share that you own. But now that same pie is sliced into four pieces. So each of them are only worth 25% of what one share used to be. Another way to describe it is if you took a pencil, got a pencil, and you broke the pencil, you do have two pencils now, right? But they're half as big. So you didn't create more. You didn't create two full-size pencils where it's worth more. It's just the same. Now, why do companies do it? So companies do it because they're, they're experts in psychology, right? They know, even if you have these companies that allow you know, fractional shares like we just talked about, they know most people think that a stock is just too expensive when the share, uh, the cost of each share has gotten so high. Amazon is a very good example. So they'll see Amazon and see that it's $3,000 a share. They'd be like, oh, I can't afford that. But they know that if they split it, now someone might say, well, I can afford to buy a share of the stock now because it's not as much. And the same with certain like, funds or mutual funds, they may be more likely to do different things with the stock if the share price is cheaper. So knowing that people feel like, again, psych psychologically, emotionally, they feel like they can afford the stock when it's at a lower price per share, more people are likely to buy it, which means what? That the stock price is probably going to go up. So when a stock is about to split, if you're in a position, if you're asking yourself, should I buy it before the split or after the split? I would argue, consider before the split, because psychologically, more people are going to be attracted to that stock after it splits, not before it splits. Hmm. So that's how a split works. It doesn't create any more value, but psychologically, people feel like when the share price is lower, they can afford more, you know, having more shares at a lower price feels better to them than just buying one share at a higher price. Thanks for breaking those down <laughs> in a simple sense. terms. Yes, it does. Okay. It does. If I'm getting it right, thinking of the pie, it's a, a four to one split would just be dividing that, that pie into four different slices and you still got the same amount of pie. If I'm looking at it from the psychological split, maybe that pie doubled in size and now it's rather than being worth $100, it's worth $200. And some people think that's way too expensive. So the, right. the pie maker, all they do is split it in half and now you got a $100 half pie and another $100 half pie that you can buy. Yeah, and that psychological part is a strong pull. Like I have a really smart brother, and when I try to explain to him that it's really just a dollar amount, I'm like, you don't have to worry about the share price. Well, how much do you want to invest? Well, I got $5,000. I'm like, okay, so we're going to invest $5,000. Does it matter if you have five shares or something or one share of something? But still, it was so strong where I still want to know the share, the number of shares. I still want... so. You know, he, he felt better buying more shares at a lower price than he did buying, paying more for just one share. That psychology is really strong. Yeah, I feel you there. So thank you for breaking those down in the simple terms. I love what you're doing with financial literacy. I am guessing that's kind of what life after retirement is for you. I mean, coming from the girl that had a full-time schedule, work, uh, college schedule, worked 50 hours a week and ran cross country. I'm guessing pina coladas and sitting on the beach isn't what you're doing <laughs> in, in retirement and in your, I love that how long you spent on writing a resignation letter as well. But yeah. one of those sentences in your resignation letter was I could follow a traditional path or blaze my own. And then you wrote, I choose the latter. So what is the latter? What are you working on right now? What's your focus? How are you spending your time? Yeah, my focus definitely is and will always be for the rest of my life. I won't retire from this. 
is financial literacy and financial education and just trying to bring society up as a whole. And, and, I, and I, I recognize that I have learned a lot about finances because it is of special interest to me. I enjoy digging so others don't have to. And I need to share that, that gift. We all have gifts. And so no matter what, in some capacity, I will always be teaching people about money and just in casual conversation. You know, I could be at a party and people kind of know me now. So they ask the money questions, but inevitably the conversation goes towards money. And I'm, ex and, I, and I like to explain things, right? Like the things you're asking me about, I like to break them down because otherwise you, you lose people. So right now I'm kind of working again, I'm still doing financial literacy stuff, but I'm, I'm working on my own body of knowledge. And I'm in a master's program at uh, Kansas State. It's uh, personal financial planning and financial therapy, because I believe the psychological side of money is a really big deal, especially when I think about my own journey of like, you know, growing up in poverty, there's a mindset that goes with that, that, that pre presents a lot of obstacles, a lot of like heavier lifting than perhaps other people that, that, you know, didn't have to do go through that. So I, in particular, like to help and I guess give guidance to people that might have, you know, struggled or, or grew up in challenging circumstances like I did. And so they like, you know, me being vulnerable and, and sharing my story and just giving it to them real. And I, I just like to leave with them that, yes, it's harder. Yes, it's heavier lifting. Yes, it makes you feel a little out of place if everyone else around you has, has, you know, certain other advantages, but you can do it. And I feel like one of the keys to even allowing that to happen is just the financial education, because, you know, money is just like that tool or, or an obstacle that's in the way that's keeping you from doing the things that you want to do. So, you know, at school, you know, I'm doing, you know, a bunch of financial education sessions. There's a, a financial wellness center that's part of the school called PowerCat Financial. I'm a part of that. And I still work with companies, organizations doing financial education and financial literacy. So that, that's something that I was kind of doing even before I retired, but I enjoy it. I get this certain type of energy when I'm doing financial literacy or teaching people or finding ways to explain something that has been so confusing for people, like helping them understand how to read their 401k. Like there's no class in that. Like nobody's really helping them at the company. You got to figure it out yourself. That's kind of where I am now. And yes, the whole financial literacy, financial education, that will forever be my body of work. I feel that's my life's work. And, you know, I'll always continue doing that. I'm very excited to see where your journey brings you in the future. I'm sure we will hopefully hear from you again sometime on the podcast. You have lots of other great interviews that are out there, other articles that have been written about you and or that you've written, a YouTube channel that I'm supposed to keep quiet, but I'm not keeping quiet right now. <laughs> yeah. um, all of that can be found on Jackie's Linktree and that's link that that's Linktree forward slash money letters. We'll just drop that in the show notes. It's way easier to find her that way. I also want to give one Everything's more plug. Hopefully you're okay with this, but she has an amazing daughter, which you heard is a graphic designer. If you are interested in some of her work, you can find her at visuallyamber.com. So um, go check her out. She's got some really cool stuff. You got a very, very talented daughter. Oh, thank you for that, Justin. I know she'll appreciate it too. But yeah, she's she's in her 20s. So I've had a front row seat to the challenges that that she's had. Not everything does she... She doesn't learn everything from my mistakes. She is making her own and she's human and she's allowed to. So I'm just very happy that she is growing up in the generation that she's grown up in, you know, technology from the day she was born. And so those are some advantages that, that younger people have. It's like technology, community everywhere. You know, you can go online and you can find someone that, you know, is doing what you're trying to do or is, is thinking like you and trying to solve the same problems as you. Thank you for, for mentioning what she does. She is very, you know, if I say, do say so myself, she's very talented, but I'm glad she followed her dream. Like when I was younger, I didn't have that luxury to do what I, I love. I didn't know what I loved to do because I just wanted to get a good job and get a paycheck. Her view is very different. And I'm glad that she had the luxury of, of doing what she, she really loves. It makes a difference. She is probably very, very proud of you as a mother as well. So yeah, no, it's, it's very cool. Jackie, it's been 
a blast having you on the show. I have one more question for you though. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Okay, so this is what I love and this is what I'm trying to do now. I, I have figured out that it's better to start with the end in mind. If money had nothing, if there was no limit to money and that was out of the picture, if you could do anything you want, have anything you want, you know, think about that. So once you do that, you've kind of got an image of, I don't know, being able to be on the beach all day. You have a beach house. You, you can see your family when you want or when you don't want. You know, you've already got that picture in your mind of what you want. I, I want a million dollars. You know, who knows? Everybody has a different thing. Or some people might be as simple as, I want the latest iPhone. So whatever, depending on the age of the kids that you're talking to. So once you have that in mind, I love to give them images. And, and I love to ask them to think about their biggest dream if money were not an object. And then we work backwards. Big picture things, I love to start talking. Like a lot of people start talking about a budget. I don't, I barely keep a budget myself. I had to sort of back into a budget. But then I would talk about bigger concepts because if you have like, if you know that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you're going to work just a little bit harder to get there, right? So it's like budget, why do I budget? Well, let me tell you why. And then you'll say, oh yeah, how do I do that? You know, how do I do a budget? But compound growth is one of these big picture concepts that makes a difference, made a huge difference with me. I was, I was like, so I was always so jazzed about knowing how much my money would grow. And that's how I would get there. I couldn't just keep it in a savings account. And then, you know, thinking about, okay, what are the superpowers that I have that will help me get there? Because we all have superpowers. Like some of us might have this great technical mind where they can fix any computer or any iPhone or whatever, or they have this entrepreneurial spirit or, you know, they didn't have to pay for college at all. Like there's small superpowers, big superpowers. But once you kind of have all of those, you've almost got like the framework that's drawn. And then they start to say, okay, let's sit down and you can tell me how to get, get here. Tell me how to do that. You know, or, or sometimes it's just, you know, if you want to be a millionaire, uh, the compound growth I always show is if you invest it $50 a week, you got a 9% growth in the stock market and you did that over 40 years, you would have a million dollars. And any, any, body that in my family that's graduating, celebrating anything, I give them a little note that says, you know, the 40 years, 9%, $50, you will get to a million dollars. And I'll say, here's the first $50 to mm. get started. And I used to give them a crisp $50 bill. Nobody wants that anymore. So I'll cash out them or whatever, and I'll send them the message. But that gets them thinking. First, they never want to spend the $50, but now they've had someone to tell them that they could be a millionaire. And it's this simple. So I like the big picture concepts that gets people jazzed. It gets them excited and interested to say, wow, I never thought about it that way. Or what do I need to do to get started? I'm on this. So, so that's kind of how I would, I would do it. And I guess the sixth, so that would be week one, the other 15 weeks that would be <laughs> each step, you know, the credit, the debt, you know, all those types of things, taxes. That's great. And I'm sure there'd be a lot of $2 bills flying around. Yeah, yeah. That, so that's my thing. There's a $2 bill there. Yeah. <laughs> So, so the, the, just a quick story with the $2 bills. When I was young and in high school, I think I was like a junior and I got a $2 bill from somebody and I thought it was special. So I held on to it. And so ever since then, every time I had got my first job and everything, every time I went to the bank, which back then you had to go to the bank to cash a check, I would ask for a $2 bill. So throughout high school and college and 20 something years of collecting $2 bills. I mean, I wouldn't just get a single one anymore. I would get like stacks of them. I don't know what I thought, but that was a forced way of saving for me. And I realized that was the first way I started saving. It wasn't that much, but I ended up with about $3,200 worth of $2 bills. And, and I'm like, what am I going to do with these $2 bills? And I said, I can't just go spend them at Walmart, right? I need to do something special with them. So now when I do financial literacy sessions, financial education, especially with like middle and high schoolers and college students. I will give away $2 bills. All they got to do is ask a good question or answer one of my questions. I just find ways to just give them away to these kids because most of them have never seen a $2 bill. They don't even think that it's real, but I get to tell the story of it doesn't matter how small it is, you start saving something as soon as you can. You know, you don't need to break the bank. You don't need to be living in poverty uh, because you're trying to save just a couple bucks a month, you know, more if you can. but 
the sooner you start, the better, and it really adds up. So my hope is that they'll keep the $2 bills and that'll be their reminder to save however you decide to do it. But um, yeah, that's the $2 bill story for me. And I do give away a lot of those. <laughs> well, you got what, 1600 plus to give away. So lots of good, curious, ambitious questions from different yeah. students around. So Jackie, absolute pleasure having you on. So excited once again to, to see where, where your life takes you. Hopefully we'll stay connected. I really, really appreciate you giving myself and the audience some of your time and of course, knowledge. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. This was wonderful, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.